Okay. Are we ready for the first question? Cecilia, no, Ajahn. Ajahn. This one will take us through the first hour. <laughs> Ajahn, when I first got into Dharma practice, I had somewhat turned my back on my Christian roots, but in the past year have been deeply inspired and moved by Christian contemplatives such as Thomas Merton and St. John, and find that it actually benefits my Dharma practice, and felt like I have experienced God's presence in my meditations even though I cannot conceptualize God. I feel like what I was fed as a child was not authentic and feel that I am starting to experience God in a way that makes sense and feels true. To me, I don't feel like it's one or the other, Buddhist or Christian, but I am hearing so much truth in the teachings of Christ as well as with Buddha. What are your thoughts on all of this? Is it possible to have faith and a loving, caring God, and at the same time be a devout Dharma practitioner. Uh, there is so much beauty in both traditions, I feel that the Christian truth has been corrupted by ignorant people. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, I, one thing I liked about Buddhism was that it um, it sticks close to what we can know. Do you want to close the door? Thanks. Um, Because if you, if you feel something, then how do you, you know, beyond that, that basic feeling, it's mostly just projection as to what it is. Uh, if you, to, to say one has experienced God, so well, um, how do you know? How do you know for sure? And that's why in Christianity, um, the whole question of belief is, is such a, a critical um, leap, and why it's so important in, in that tradition. Uh, whereas in Buddhism, the idea of belief doesn't play such a, an important role. Where there are certain things that, uh, certain areas where faith uh, do come in, but it's more like a, a working faith, uh, sort of like a, uh, a hypothesis that uh, say, well, 
Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but I'll test it out for myself. I think with any uh, religions, you're going to find a lot in common. You're going to find areas where it's just part of, you know, um, human nature that when we act in a particular way, then uh, it's going to have beneficial effects. So certainly on the level of sila, usually, um, you know, there can be a lot in common on the level of being a good person. But then even on the level of sila, you can, depending on how uh, literally you're taking uh, various scriptures, you know, even something like a relationship to animals, um, where is it, you know, it if a holy book is saying that you've got right to to use animals any way that you wish, for example, then you can end up making a lot of bad karma that way. So I think it, um, it depends a lot on personal interpretation as well. I mean, something like... Uh, There's probably as many definitions of God as there are uh, people who believe it. Now, uh, on, at some level, um, you can't. It doesn't work to have a belief in, a, in an eternal, omniscient God, and to be following the path of purification of hearts through the Buddhist teachings. They, they diverge at a certain point. Um, for example, the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path is right view. And so part of that is, uh, you know, the Buddha very clearly goes through and, and describes what that is. And there's one sutta in the Digha Nikaya where he goes through and and discusses all of the major views, religious views at that particular time. It's called the Brahmajala Sutta. And uh, it goes through the 62 major religious views that were current at his time. And generally the, the views would go into the sides of uh, eternalist views and annihilationist views. And the eternalist views uh, would in some way conceive of something as eternal, whether it's some external eternal um, entity, like a god, or a uh, internal, e eternal entity, so like uh, an undying, unchanging soul. Uh, the other side was annihilationist, which um, was more in the camp of, well, it's all just elements arising and passing away, but there's, there was nothing before and there's nothing afterwards, so nothing really matters. <clears throat> uh, even you know, conventional morality doesn't matter. So, um, in terms of developing deep insight, then uh, an eternalist viewpoint would block uh, insight. Right. So if there's, it, it's funny how the mind works, but um, if there's like 
if it's programmed to believe in a particular, um, you know, that something is eternal and unchanging, then um, that will tend to um, make it impossible to see anicca or anatta deep enough. So, the short answer is, yes, there's, you know, with any grouping of spiritual paths, you can kind of combine them in a certain way, which works. Um, but in the end, to take one very deeply, or to take any of them very deeply, it's important just to focus on one. Seeking insight into one's kilesas considered vipassana meditation, or is vipassana limited to seeking insight into ultimate reality issues like emptiness? Can you say more about the intersection between common and ultimate reality? Um, well, the, the term vipassana uh, wasn't actually used by the Buddha all that much compared to you know, the ways that we would normally sum up his teachings. And when it did occur in the suttas, it was uh, always conjoined with like samatha and vipassana or samadhi and vipassana. They would go together. And uh, it was a, a general term referring to um, insight into one's, into, into the nature of reality. But basically, understanding the nature of reality is going to, at the same time, be uh, insight into one's kilesas, one's, uh, how one's relating to that, how one's relating to the reality. So as soon as there's real insight, that it's going to start to uproot delusion. It's going to start to um, replace delusion with knowledge with understanding. It's going to start replacing ignorance with wisdom. And that just undermines uh, any movement towards being greedy or any movement towards being angry. When it talks about ultimate reality issues like emptiness, you know, originally the Buddha didn't um, speak about emptiness all that much, and um, it wasn't considered like the, the one of the primary things that would come into um, come into play for insight. You know, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, the nature of unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, uh, insight into non-self. Now, these were really the uh, the main t- 
tools that uh, the Buddha was encouraging people to use. There are suttas on emptiness, um, but it was also almost like a tool that you could use in order to contemplate things. And basically, it's just another way of looking at something. You know, if you if you see one of these characteristics, you're going to see all of them. Ajahn, can you speak to the difference between desire and intent? How can one let go of attachment to outcome and still maintain commitment and persevere with intention? Well, in Pali you have the words tanha, which is desire, which is more an unwholesome desire which uh, is going to be leading to suffering of some kind, whether it's big or small. And then you've got the word chanda, which, especially dhamma chanda, which is the desire to practice the dhamma. And the desire to practice the dhamma, the Buddha considered essential. You can't do without it, because you need to have some motivation some momentum to start. Otherwise, um, well, we we won't even have the uh, won't even make the effort to come on a retreat. You know, and everything they would go through on a retreat, all the, the discomfort that we go through on the retreat. You know, it takes a certain um, wish, a certain seeking. And so, even when you're working with Dhammachanda, a lot of time it's important to make sure we're working with it in the right balance. It's important to have, I think, like a guiding star in the distance that we're aiming towards and then however far we get going in that direction, well, we just accept, you know, however far we get. But the most important thing is that we're heading in the right direction. A lot of the progress in meditation, especially in certain stages of meditation, will come not through uh, wishing and hoping and desiring, certainly not through craving, but will come actually through just being very content with the way things are, being very at peace with the way things are, and allowing the mind to settle into that. And then that deepens of its own accord. So it's almost like there's a contradiction there. That uh, the, the quickest way to make progress is to just be totally content with the way things are right now. And to be totally content means that, okay, maybe we'll, maybe we'll never get any better than this. But somehow there's still a, a satisfaction in putting forth effort. Uh, there's a, a contentment in just, just continuing on doing it. 
right? It's a balance. You know, there's a matter of keeping the big picture in mind and, and the purpose of what we're doing and how all the, the different parts of practice fit together uh, and relate to the big picture. And I think that's important to keep in mind. But, you know, if you have a good experience sometime, I feel like that was a really good meditation, and then you wish to get it back, and you crave to get it back, you hope to get it back, and keep practicing, hoping to that it was going to happen again, that's not the cause and condition for it to happen again. It may have happened because you are perfectly content, or because you are sustaining awareness on your meditation or because the factors in the mind were, had come into balance. So craving for progress uh, is counterproductive, so that doesn't work. Well, there's a fine balance there between um, being very content with the results and yet keeping that um, enthusiasm for Dhamma practice going uh, with uh, create by creating the causes and conditions getting a lot of very theoretical questions. It's good to have questions which are kind of relating to one's practice and meditation and not, not too out there. Does the movement of karma ever cease? That's his one. I don't think so. Not that I know. Okay. This one's clearly coming from your direct meditative experience. Ajahn, can I have a picture of you? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have a camera. Well. Maybe. <laughs> Ajahn, once the body has been completely obliterated, <laughs> someone's been taking this morning's meditation very literally, how can the question be asked, is this me? Since there is only space left and space does not talk or ask questions. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, there's more to what we consider me than just our just the physical elements of the body, isn't there? I mean, there's thoughts, perceptions, moods, memories, emotions, consciousness. 
So that's what can be asking the question. Even if the body has, in our visualization, disappeared, we can still look at those emptiness, you know, look at the, uh, the, the lack of elements or the, the disintegration of elements back into the earth and say, you know, where these elements mean. Um, specifically with that meditation, it's when we're looking at the various piles or looking at how our body looks. You know, for example, sitting as a skeleton or a pile of bones. You know, is this something that we identify with? And if so, it's just good to look at it and say, oh, yeah, actually, uh, you know, I do identify with my thigh bone or my rib bone or uh, my intestines or whatever. It's good just to look at that. Um, but, you know, you can also identify with space element. We talk about earth element and the body and water element and the fire element, which is the heat of the body and the air element, which is kind of the cohesive factor. And you have consciousness element, which is the, the mental realm. But then you also have space element. And, you know, it, even empty space. Can you identify with empty space? If someone put their finger in your mouth, would you identify with the space in your mouth? You're saying, get out of my space, man. <laughs> you're, you're infringing on my space. And they say, well, it's just empty space. It's not yours. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or the space in your ears. You know, let's go inside the ears. There's, all, there's space in there. And we can still identify with that empty space as being us. Ajahn, I've mostly looked at sitting as a practice of being in the present moment. When you start to think of achieving something and becoming kinder, more aware, enlightened, isn't that already taking you away from the present moment? How can you make the most productive... How can you make the, the most productive and without lofty goals? Something. <laughs> and... <clears throat> Uh, so with the Noble Eightfold Path, for every factor there, you've got, for it to be working right, you've got both mindfulness and right effort. So the mindfulness part is just being aware of what already is in the present moment. Right? And then the right effort part is actually doing something about it. Right? I mean, the, and, and the right effort, what it means to be right, um, for any particular moment will will depend. It'll always, you know, sometimes it means um, just being more mindful and carrying that on. Other times it means bringing up wholesome states of mind. Uh, the awareness part of it, like, well, all of the causes and conditions from the past have led us up to this moment. Right? And there's, so there's nothing we can do about that anymore. You know, this has already happened. Then the first step is just to to be aware of that, and that gives us a solid um, place to start. But, and although that, that is very powerful already, 
because that leads to a lot of self-awareness of you know what's actually going on but that's certainly not the whole story because then uh, from that point on once we have a realistic understanding or uh, insight into what's going on in the present then we can make the conscious decision to um, develop certain qualities and let certain other qualities go and so right effort is, in that way is um, kind of time related you know, in, in a sense and it's happening in the present um, but again it's kind of the bit of a mixture between ultimate reality and, and conventional reality conventionally yeah we're, we're there's an idea that we're working towards something better in the future whereas uh, ultimate reality is well it's difficult to say if there is even is a future and it's just kind of one moment after the next I think it it's helpful to have certain um, inspiring goals of something that uh, we could aim towards head towards uh, just to kind of lead us lead the mind in a particular direction but again the whole idea of um, achieving sometime is people can become obsessive about it in our culture you know there can be so much emphasis placed on uh, achieving success however you define success that it's not it, it's no it's not peaceful and so uh, how we relate to that word say um, achieving or how we even relate to the idea of success in Dhamma practice you know can be very different than than the way that's uh, encouraged in the mainstream Ajahn, where do the thoughts come from? It seems that I can cut them off, but they keep coming and going. Where do the thoughts come from? Well, it's a natural function of the mind to think. So it's not the idea that meditation is meant to just get rid of all thinking or that success in practice is like to to get rid of all thinking because as Ajahn Piek would say he says you know the only person that doesn't think is a dead person even fully enlightened people are going to have thoughts coming up it's just that um, for one the, the the intention and motivation behind the thoughts are are, are pure 
and also the there's like an inner quietude and the thoughts aren't obsessively coming so there's a lot more space maybe in between the thoughts and around the thoughts um, so thoughts are generally like echoes from all of the sensory input that we take in whether it's information that we read or conversations that we have or things that we see um, things that we hear and then quite often thoughts are just echoes from that and a certain amount of practice is a matter of kind of cutting off things you know when a, when a thought comes and it's kind of grabbing or inviting the, our attention to run off into some story and yeah it, it takes a certain uh, like discipline and strength to just you know, cut it and say uh, no not now or that's maybe not a useful thing to be thinking about right now and then come back especially when you're meditating you just be able to to catch it and then very gently and firmly just come back to the present and let it go and thoughts are it's just mental energy so if we don't feed it more energy then it just dissipates now certain thoughts can keep coming back again and again and then that will be indicative of something that's going on below the surface more like a reflection or an echo of something that's going on deeper in consciousness and so just looking at the content of thought or sometimes the, um, the feeling behind the thought you can get an idea of something that's going on deeper but also thoughts can just be a distraction you know, for example you may sometimes when the meditation starting to go well and and then suddenly there's just um, a raft of thoughts that, that uh, start coming up as a distraction and it's not it's not usually the thoughts themselves that are uh, the important factor but if you can just go to what's right behind the thought so, well, and sometimes that means just going back to a physical sensation or going back to um, a more basic feeling behind the thoughts and tune in on that and then that can be the actual place where something's being clung to so thoughts won't ever like totally go away but there will be times when uh, when samadhi starts to settle in thoughts become more and more peripheral or um, they don't they don't grab the intention so much or they don't come as a constant stream they may just come you know, periodically uh, within the space of being grounded 
occasionally there'd be a thought coming up. Another thought coming up. But it doesn't really shake the the peace of the awareness. Okay. Ajahn, as I got deeper into the question, quote, is this me? Who is asking the question? Yeah, well, who is asking the question? <laughs> That's the point, yeah. Is there a difference between awareness and consciousness? Uh, no, not really. Those are different terms, but essentially uh, consciousness means, you know, the, the, the defining factor of consciousness is being aware. Is it possible to be aware of consciousness? Um, yes, in Buddhism we usually talk about consciousness referring to like sense consciousness, um, um, like the conscious of being, uh, conscious of seeing. You know, seeing is actually um, like eye consciousness, and um, hearing is is consciousness at the at the ear door or consciousness of the mind. So you can be aware of of being aware. It's usually like one moment afterwards, one very brief moment. Whenever whenever we're aware of something, it has already just passed, and we're aware that it, of something that's just passed. And then something else happens, we're aware of that. And yes, you can be aware of consciousness, especially when the mind's more peaceful, and, and there aren't a lot of other things um, disturbing the, the peace of the consciousness. So you can just be aware of that sense of spaciousness, but very clear, you know, there's a, a knowledge that you're aware, an understanding that you're aware. Is it possible to be aware and not conscious? Um, no. I think if you're unconscious, just by definition, then there's no awareness. But it depends on what you mean by unconscious. I mean, you could have a near-death experience and kind of the body is um, not really conscious in a normal way. The, your, your eyes may not be open, um, but there still might be consciousness around or awareness around. So again, it depends on how you define consciousness. But if you're thinking of unconscious as like blacked out, then you know, you can't be blacked out and be aware at the same time. Also, what is the Pali word for awareness? Uh, sati. Sati. Mindfulness, awareness, um, attention, different uh, definition, different uh, translations for the word sati. John, the Buddha encouraged dwelling in cemeteries to contemplate death and decay of the body. Since bodies are now buried or burned after death, there are no longer bodies in sight to contemplate. I know. It's not like the good old days. (laughs) (laughs) 
ancient India it was great. They just had bodies lying everywhere. <laughs> I have heard that it is still recommended to take up temporary dwelling in cemeteries to contemplate death and spirits, as well as facing any fears of spirits and ghosts. Is this practice today? Please share your wisdom of this type of practice. Okay. Um, there are many ways that uh, dwelling in places like that can be practiced. Modern cemeteries are actually probably very peaceful places to go meditate because you don't get a whole lot of people hanging out there um, making a lot of noise and they can be kind of like nice peaceful parks but they're parks dedicated to um, people who are dead and so that in itself is uh, a good reflection you know you look around a cemetery you look at the all the names and dates on the headstones and sometimes uh, a few a line of description about the person and you think how many people have lived and died in just, you know, even in just a short few hundred years that a lot of our cemeteries um, have been recording? And just how many people have lived and died? And, and it helps just to put one lifetime in perspective. Because it's, you know, when we have this life, it feels like, well, this is most important time in history. <laughs> this is my life. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in reality, this has been generation after generation after generation after generation, bodies arising, being born, growing, growing old, and dying. And it just keeps carrying on. And uh, we're just sort of the, the latest part of the human wave. So uh, cemeteries can be, you know, practical reminders of that. Um, look, I'll, I'll talk about this more tonight. Huh? I won't. This is a this is a good one, and it is something that. Um, I think that it has a lot of potential there for insight and uh, contemplation of death in various ways has been used a lot uh, for developing insight and letting go. Ajahn, why is Mahayana Buddhism considered to be the major vehicle? It's because because they have, the, because they pay the PR artists. Because <laughs> they have good public relations, that's why. And they made up that term. <laughs> <laughs> and why is it considered to make enlightenment more available than Theravada Buddhism? Well, it's because that's just what they say. <laughs> Um, my understanding of the whole uh, history of Buddhism is that obviously in the time of the Buddhism you didn't have any any different schools. You just had 
you didn't even have Buddhism. What the Buddha uh, called his his teachings was Dhamma Vinaya. He didn't call it Buddhism or or a Pali version of Buddhism. Dhamma Vinaya. The Dhamma we know is the, the teachings that we take refuge in. Vinaya, meaning uh, essentially sila or the monastic discipline, and then the two uh, together um, form this lifestyle leading to liberation. Gradually after the Buddha passed away, and then um, different teachers would have slightly different emphases. You know, they may emphasize a certain part of the Dhamma teachings more than others. Um, even in the time of the Buddha, some of the teachers, like Mahamogalana, uh, were more, um, ver- they were very skilled in deep samadhi and um, in the higher stages of practice. Um, someone like Sariputta, Venerable Sariputta, um, could expound the Dhamma just as well as the Buddha. Uh, so uh, he had a very quick and analytical mind, as well as being fully enlightened. Um, someone like Mahakasapa, well, his nature was that he, he was very kind of tough and ascetic. So he, he kind of, his disciples tended to be kind of like that. He was a bit like the Ajahn Mahabua of the day, you know, pretty tough and ascetic. And, um, Ananda was like really kind and mellow um, uh, and with a good memory. <laughs> so as uh, after the Buddha passed away then um, gradually, very gradually more like different um, they weren't even considered schools yet but they would kind of uh, have different flavors and then over periods of hundreds of years that could develop into okay well this, this particular school or this school of thought um, but even then, you would have people from different schools practicing and living in the same monasteries. Uh, so it wasn't all that, you know, it was still very harmonious. About 500 years after the Buddha passed away, uh, then um, mm-hmm. gradually there was uh, a school that uh, eventually developed into what, was, what it called itself the Mahayana. And um, whenever there's, well, there were there were certain um, like defining features of that school, which did set it apart. And um, for example, one was uh, raising the bodhisattva ideal and lowering the arhant ideal. Uh, that was probably one of the major ones. But any time that you have sort of a mainstream happening in a religion and then some group wants to um, somehow break away from that or start something different then they usually ha- you have to come up with some justification to do that and especially since you say well the uh, the mainstream you know came from the Buddhist teaching and then if you break away how can you do any better than the original Buddhist teachings so then, then a, a, the idea would come up, well, actually, um, the Buddha hid the deepest teachings in a heaven realm. <laughs> and 
because the immediate disciples weren't ready for it yet. And so he hid the deepest teachings in the heaven realm, and now, 500 years later, um, they've been brought down, and now they're being propagated. And, they, and, uh, and so if you believe that, then <laughs> that's fine. Um, to me, it sounds, it just seems more like uh, the way that, you know, you, if you're kind of breaking away from the mainstream or, or breaking away from, from a continuity of a lineage, then you have to justify it in some way. You say, well, in some way it's got to be better, otherwise there's no use in breaking away. So, so that's one way they justify it. And, um, and then the whole idea of, say, Mahayana, that, that was a term that they coined themselves that never existed before that. Yana means vehicle, Maha means great. Uh, and so if you're calling yourself the great vehicle, then you kind of term the other groups, the other schools as um, lesser vehicle. Uh, now the Mahayana term for that was Hina. Uh, Hinayana. Now the word the word Hina uh, means low, base, or vulgar. <laughs> right? So there w there was never a school that would call itself voluntarily <laughs> the Hinayana. It's like, well, which path do you follow, Venerable Sir? I follow the low, base, and vulgar path. <laughs> And what results do you hope to expect from following the low base and vulgar path, Venerable Sir? Well, <laughs> um, and so, and then um, whole new scriptures start to started to arise. I mean, you had the you have the Pali scriptures, and there was, you know, there was a very a systematic a tradition of, of of keeping that going, and but then about 500 years or so after that, it began you began to get a collection of alternative sutras, which were were similar but but in many ways very different than the Pali. Uh, you know, in different insignificant ways, in ways that um, would, in many ways, kind of change the ideal. And these new, um, the new scriptures were written as if the Buddha had taught those himself. Now, now, according to them, it did, the Buddha taught it and hid it in to heaven and then came back down and was then um, presented as the Mahayana Sutras. Um, I mean, uh, my personal thing is if you look at it uh, as in a historical development, I can see how that, how, how that would come about and why they would justify it that way. Um, but if you ask me if I believe that, I personally I don't believe that. Now, um, unfortunately, because of the, the a lot of the basic Mahayana sutras, uh, 
are, they, they still form the basis for a lot of um, what you find, especially in Tibetan Buddhism. So whenever they're going through their kind of their text, it's just uh, it's like um, they can't get they keep coming back to this theme of how they're superior and the Hinayana is inferior. And you know after a while it gets a bit old if you're from the Theravada tradition. And, and it doesn't really ring true because a lot of the things, well pretty much everything of what they think the Hinayana is, well it doesn't apply to Theravada, whatever they, they're defining as the Hinayana, you know, in terms of um, the tenets, etc., the beliefs, the practices of Hinayana, it doesn't correspond with Theravada. Um, but because it's so ingrained that, uh, you know, in the, the Mahayana Sutras, um, it's, kind of, it's still difficult to get away from. And it tends to, at least for me anyways, um, take away from a lot of the really beautiful sutras and profound uh, aspects in uh, the Mahayana Buddhism. So, uh, so I, I I think they'd be more popular with Theravadins if they weren't on a superiority trip. <laughs> you know, happy to accept them as equals. <laughs> okay. Oh, one thing I should mention. Now, the whole idea of the, the Bodhisattva path. Now, uh, well, in Theravada Buddhism, or you know, just original Buddhism, there was the idea of the the Pali term for bodhisattva is bodhisattva. Okay, so you, the idea was that the mind is programmable so that um, if a person had all of the, the potential to realize full enlightenment, arhanship, in that lifetime, but then out of compassion uh, for being, you know, becoming a Buddha, one could actually renounce that and then somehow that you know it actually works in the mind if you have that much um or natural spiritual potential you can actually um apparently make a determination that no i'm not going to get enlightened this lifetime and i'm going to keep voluntarily coming back being reborn in order to develop all these wholesome paramis things like generosity kindness patience etc and to the point where um like one's spiritual potential is absolutely full and then one can be re one can um, kind of arise as a Buddha however there is a very long waiting list right and um, one thing that you find over and over again in the Pali Suttas is how much the Buddha is saying um, get enlightened as soon as possible right practice now um, the future is uncertain. You know, there's there's never any emphasis or encouragement for people to delay uh, their own enlightenment for the benefit of others, um, because in many ways the the greatest way that we can really benefit others is by practicing now and realizing the Dhamma now, and helping others right here and now. <clears throat> and um, 
with the arising of the Mahayana then, that ideal of one who um, sacrifices one's own enlightenment in order to develop qualities uh, for the benefit of helping others, that became more the, the ideal to work towards. And um, if, if a person really knows what they're doing, then I think that has, um, you know, that has some merit to it and is really worthy of respect. But um, for normal unenlightened people to consciously make the decision that no, I'm not going to get enlightened this lifetime, I'm going to put it off, uh, also has uh, some dangerous consequences because you don't know for sure what your future rebirths are going to be like. You don't know for sure if you're going to have the opportunity to come in contact with the Dhamma. You don't know if you're going to be reborn as a human being again, or when, or where. I mean, to have the opportunity to practice the Dhamma even even like this, even when we're cold and wet, you know, still extremely rare. You think of all the conditions that had to come together just to make this retreat possible. You know, it's a huge amount of causes and conditions just to just to make it possible so that we can sit here and do nothing. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's good to to contemplate as well because. Um, you know, until one has you know, the original idea of the Bodhisattva was that you, know, you had the potential already in that lifetime to become fully enlightened and then you said no I'm going to put it off uh, another well see then you had the, the Bodhisattvas the definition of a Bodhisattva is that uh, you keep being reborn in samsara over and over again. But now the first stage of enlightenment, sotapanna, right, as soon as you've had insight that goes deep enough to realize stream entry, or sotapanna, then at most you've only got seven more lifetimes before you become fully enlightened. So if you're on the bodhisattva path and you attain stream entry, even the first level of enlightenment, then you've blown it. <laughs> Right? You've, you've blown it. You've got too much insight. And, and you know, you, you can't. You just, like, the, the process has been, of rebirth has been mortally wounded. And you, you just can't keep coming back. It's not a, something that's within uh, our control. Because there's no one controlling it anyways. So then, to deal with this, then the Mahayana kind of redefined arhat, redefined bodhisattva. And so, so the arhat, instead of being originally, origin, the original idea of an arhat, and still is in Theravada, is that the, um, the Buddha was an arhat, right? And, and anyone who achieved, achieved full enlightenment was an arhat. And the level of awakening between an arhat and a Buddha was exactly the same. But the Buddha had all of these other qualities in addition to to most of the arhats. Um, but then, 
that got redefined as, well, arhats, um, it's like a lower form of enlightenment. They're not really there yet. Uh, and it's it's really kind of a selfish enlightenment. And, th- and all this was like very much added later. And then the whole idea of the bodhisattva got raised up uh, to being, well, these beings are already enlightened, already Buddhas, etc. And then you get like whole new cosmologies coming up of um, Buddhas and bodhisattvas, which hadn't been there previous to that. So that's why the Mahayana Buddhism considers itself to be the major vehicle. Okay. Uh. Dear Ajahn, what practice advice would you give to someone wishing to be celibate with the intention to become free from that type of craving? In parentheses, and don't say you're a lay person, so you don't need to be celibate. Okay, I won't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what type of practice advice would you give to someone wishing to be celibate? Well, just don't do anything. If you don't do anything, then be celibate. Um, Just keep practicing the Dhamma. I mean, the Dhamma is, is going to um, lead to a, a overcoming of all craving, right? But if you really, I mean, if it's, um, if for whatever reason you want to be celibate and uh, out in the, the mainstream where there's a lot of, um, there's not a whole lot of support for that, and there's a lot uh, kind of bringing the mind back towards um, sensuality and romance, and romance is held up as you know, it's a high ideal. Um, so then, to balance that out, if you really want to be celibate, then um, probably you could develop this uh, contemplation of the body that we did this morning. You know, that... Uh, that can help put things in balance. Uh, oh, there's, there's all sorts of corpse meditations I could teach you. You know, that's hard to get, well, for most people, it's hard to get much romantic energy going with corpses. Uh, <laughs> uh, so usually that works. Um, a lot of the a lot of the um, kind of popular mainstream Buddhist teachings uh, focus on uh, reducing anger or reducing delusion, but maybe don't focus so much on the practices that are there for reducing uh, sensual passion. Uh, which, you know, in monastic life, we, we practice those as well, practice all of those. 
for the reason that most people don't want to be celibate. And uh, they, they do want to reduce their anger, and they do want to be more kind and forgiving, um, but they still want to be in a relationship. And, uh, and so they don't want any start practicing things that are going to throw a wet blanket on that. Um, but if you're intent on, on uh, living a, uh, a life of, for example, uh, eight precepts, you know, in the mainstream, then good on you. You know, go for it. Um, the eight precepts were designed for, for, say, people living the household life, maybe even people um, who had families already, but wanted to live like, um, you know, a serious Dhamma practitioner within the mainstream. And for whatever reason, you know, weren't going to go into a monastery. So if you're living the eight precepts, then, you know, you're pretty much, you know, you're, you're living um, a very, um, almost monastic life. So that's, that, those are guidelines that can be followed. And then in addition to that, come see me, I'll teach you all about the various passion-reducing corpse meditations. Ajahn, this retreat will soon end. How am I going to be able to ask questions and receive instructions afterwards? <laughs> Come to New Zealand. Because <laughs> it says in parentheses, from you. I mean, there are plenty of Dhamma teachers around, so it's not like I'm the only Dhamma teacher. But um, if you want, it says, how, how will I be able to ask questions and receive instructions afterwards from you? Say, well, okay, yeah. There's this little island in the middle of the South Pacific called New Zealand. And uh, if you want to go stay there for a while, we have places and huts for people to stay. And uh, you're most welcome to come stay for any length of time. Um, that's probably better. Um, I do have email and internet, but the reality is I just don't have time to have lots of question and answer sessions with people over the internet. That just takes too much time, uh, um, in addition to everything else I have to do. But um, to actually come and um, live and take part in the monastic life for a while, um, you know, many people do find that very beneficial, that it just kind of sinks in. And it's not like being on a retreat, because this is a very special set of conditions. The daily monastic life is more um, there's more s stuff happening. Uh, it's not silent all the time. There's not um, this much group meditation. There's a um, combination of individual time for practice, and um, but also time that we're working around the monastery. And there's uh, group interaction, group dynamics become a very important part of the practice in a monastery, how we're relating to other people, what comes up um, living with a group of people.
much more than being on a retreat where we're actually encouraged not to interact with each other. So that's all. Okay, that's the last question. Carry on with uh, your swimming meditation. <laughs>